I want to talk to you this morning about our missional Messiah. I just want to get right in the word. And um, if you've been kind of keeping up with the website, you might have seen um, at dpnrv.org. I'm going to continue to highlight that week after week because I noticed this morning Tulio had seven announcements on his list and he only did three. And that means that you need to pay attention to the website, which is a really great place for information about what's going on in Dwelling Place. So I'd encourage you to do that. But also I had actually posted a blog or Matt posted for me a blog this week that was just a bit of an introduction even to this word because I want us to have opportunities throughout the course of the week to think about what God's saying and, and what God's doing. And um, I've had a few weeks to think about the stories and parables of Jesus. And so actually I've kind of been chomping at the bits. But what a great three weeks we had with um, the weekend worship with the Helsers and then Sasha. Oh, I thought Sasha just, I got all kinds of notes and words out of what Sasha shared. And then last week, if you were here, we were ridiculously blessed in getting to hear from the guys who God's been just working transformationally in their lives in the Eagle's Nest Regeneration Ministry. And, and again, thanks for blessing there. And we're asking God to bless you financially as you continue to sow. Here's what we believe. We believe that the Lord calls us to be stewards of everything that he's given us. And that when we pool our resources, not P-U-L-L, but P-O-O-L, pool our resources, we really are better together. And we have a project right here. So it's not our heart only to sow out in missions, but to sow into the mission of the church. So when you... When you uh, are faithful to give in the offering box that sits back there. I want you to know this: that it's you know we're never going to have high back chairs on the stage, or, or we're not looking for fancy. We're looking for effective. That's what we want and hope to be. And um, and so when we have that opportunity to sow, and the reason I mention that is because in as much as I really have a heart for missions, M I S S I O N S, really have a heart for over the ocean across the culture, I want you to know this, that I believe we have a call, not just to missions, but to missional. And I know in our evangelical culture, that's become a bit cliche, but it was always God's heart that we be missional. And in fact, you see that in the life of Jesus Christ, who himself was engaged in the world around him. He crossed cultures. He did that. He, I mean, and he, he couldn't cover the ground that we can cover, but it, there wasn't as much to cover at the time anyway. But he was, he was very engaged. And in fact, you could say, some have said that the, the woman at the well in John chapter 4 was the first missionary because she ran back to her town in Sychar and Samaria and she was telling everybody the word that she had had. But, you know, I mean, you could say Andrew was the first guy because Andrew went to Peter and said, come see this man. I think he might be the Messiah. And, and, or you could say it was John the Baptist. I mean, so, but I would say that it was Jesus because we know it's 307 days till Christmas and we know that when Jesus came on Christmas morning that that was the greatest um, missional move ever made. That, that John wrote in John 1.14 as we studied this time last year that the Word became flesh, incarnational. Our Messiah was missional and incarnational that the Word became flesh and, and literally dwelt made his dwelling. I mean, he got in our world. And, and though in the body he might have left, he, he never really left. But he's an ever-present, right? Our missional, incarnational Messiah. The word incarnation simply is the doctrine that the second person of the Trinity did come in the flesh. But for us to be incarnational means that we embody um, or exhibit the same quality 
in this sense, to be incarnational Christians means that we get to be what BJ talked about a minute ago. We get to get dirty for Jesus. You know what I'm saying? And to be his hands and feet and to live right in the middle of his world, our world, and be an evidence, right? Sometimes around here we talk about, the, we use the word manifest. It kind of cracks me up sometimes, our vocabulary and dwelling place. I have fun with it. And we say, man, man, they manifest. You know, they're, and that's true sometimes. And we don't mean they had a demon either. We just mean that their flesh kind of jumped out. And I, I joke with people sometimes. They'll say, well, I was just manifesting. Uh, I was fleshing out or something. And I told someone that's a good friend of mine once, I said, hey, if you got a name for it, that's still not a good excuse to do it all the time. You know, I'm just saying. And, but I would like for us to manifest the presence of God like to manifest the person of Jesus Christ to be God incarnate you know what I'm saying to, to, and to embody who he is not just who he was but, but who he is and, and, and a missional Christian missional living for the Christian is just a term that means to live the missionary lifestyle right in this world like right here right now right here right now because when we think about missionary, well, first of all, sometimes we think I'm not a missionary. And I mean, I mean, we've all been in a church somewhere that had a sign over a door that said, you're now entering your mission field. And we, we believe that that's true. I just don't know how well we necessarily practice it. I know sometimes I don't very well. And, and so... But, you know, man, you put us on a mission over the ocean or something or or you go to a different town and you're going to take some time. And so it seems like it's easier for us sometimes to live on a mission when it's some uh, geographical place other than our home for a specified period of time. When the reality is our greatest mission, again, is right here, right now. And that was the example that Jesus uh, lived for us. And when Jesus came down from the mountain of uh, 40 days, we talked about the last time we had a chance uh, to visit the stories and parables of Jesus. We talked about a, a Jesus who fights for us. Like he had something to fight for. Remember the 40-day temptation, the battle royale that was the temptation of Christ. And we talked about how he had something to fight for. And it really wasn't something, it was someone. And we were the someone that he was fighting for. But and then I remind you that immediately after that, that the Scripture tells us in, in three of the Gospels, specifically I'll mention Luke chapter 4, that when Jesus then went into his hometown of Nazareth, he was rejected. He was rejected by the home folk, you know. It's not uncommon when you uh, step out and try to live life missionally in your home uh, land, your, your place of... Uh, consistent connection that people are going to think that's a little over the top and i'm going to say to you that uh that's okay that even happened to jesus but it's necessary to persist it was that wasn't the last time that jesus went to nazareth and it's necessary to persist in spite of the fact that there may be times when people think you're uh a little you know they'll use words like steve they'll say things like well you're just a little uh, radical or whatever you know but actually i don't i don't correct myself i don't think people say that anymore or maybe I just stopped here, and I'm not sure. I hope that I'm still radical. I hope. But I don't know. I don't think people say that so much anymore. But, but um, I don't think it matters anyway. And then we know that Jesus, man, as he, he took off in his public ministry, he 
Um, the scripture tells us in Mark chapter 1, verses 23, that one of his first encounters... Now, now understand this as we walk through the stories and parables of Jesus. I'm, not going to, I'm only going to say this this week. I'm not going to be perfect chronologically. I must admit to you that I'm a little OCD about wanting to be chronologically uh, correct. But the harmony of the Gospels are a fascinating thing. These guys were telling a story. Anybody who believes that they uh, concocted a story and then each told it, man, they, I don't believe that that's true. They would have, Mark like stayed in chapter 1 forever. I mean, you know, and Matthew was all the way to chapter 12 before Mark ever made it to chapter 2. I mean, I, Mark might have cheated a little bit off of Matthew, but I don't, I'm telling you, these guys, I believe they recounted the stories that they had heard or been told or in some cases had specifically seen in the life of Christ. And um, Mark tells us a story in Mark chapter 1 and verse 23 about Jesus healing and delivering a demonic. That was one of the first miracles. If you, John tells some different stories earlier in his uh, narrative. But, and you see that Jesus was... He, the reality was when he saw a need, he worked to meet that need. And then as he continued on his journey, we hear a story in Matthew chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. I'm telling you, Matthew was fast. He wrote a lot of details. So he, they really, he wrote so much that whoever decided to set the Bible into chapters, you know, they, they spread him out quick. But, but Matthew 8 tells about a day when Jesus visited Peter's home. And it's, it's easy sometimes, just as an aside, it's easy sometimes to not think about um, the disciples as guys who had families. But Peter had a wife, and he was, they were visiting Peter's home, and, and, and Peter's mother-in-law was sick. I can only imagine this conversation. Hey, man, you know, I mean, if you could help a brother out right here, though, because my mother-in-law's got a fever. And, I mean, she already thinks I'm crazy for following you, but if you could make her well, that would really be great. I don't think Jesus needed encouragement. He's a healer. But the scripture tells us that he healed Peter's mother-in-law. But there's really just two stories. There's lots of stories here. There's, I've, I basically decided, talked about this last Monday in lead staff, but I basically decided that there are 273 different stories and parables. There aren't nearly that many parables, obviously. But if you break this down into little bitty pieces, Rob, man, you could... We could be doing this for years. I mean, and I was thinking this was through May, so I can't possibly tell all the stories. <laughs> but I want to focus on two stories today. Number one, I want us to talk about a story that's found in Luke chapter 5, verses 12 and 13. I want to read it, which says this. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. Remember, we're talking about our missional, incarnational Messiah. The entireties of the Gospels are an account of a Messiah, a Savior, on a mission. And this is one of those stories. And when he saw Jesus, he being the leper, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Now, this is interesting because we know that um, in first century Christianity, uh, in the world that they lived in, it was necessary for a leper when he was walking down the path. If he wasn't sequestered or uh, quarantined to a leper colony, it was his responsibility, even when he walked down the road, to call out that he was unclean. But somehow Jesus' reputation must have preceded him in this story. 
this leper must have heard. And I'm sure that there was quite a, quite a crowd. There had been uh, several other miracles the Scripture don't give detail to, but in the, the four Gospels, as this chronology is working its way, we see that there were certainly other occasions when Jesus was ministering to groups of people and, and different people had been touched and healed. But now this, though, is a leper. This isn't, this isn't a fever. This isn't, even in Christendom, the belief that some, uh, a, a prophet or a rabbi could cast out a demon. This isn't a demon. And I think when Jesus encountered the demoniac, he healed more than, he, he did more than deliver. The scripture literally says that he healed the demoniac. I think he healed his heart, right? But this guy's got leprosy. You don't touch a leper, Right? I mean, you can't get in. I mean, you've got to be careful not to get in. If you're going to live missionally and incarnationally, don't you have to be careful not to get into people's mess so that it might become your mess? You know, I mean, you've got to, you've got to have some separation. I, I remember even first being on staff at churches in the early, the late 80s, actually. I started to say the early 90s, Karen, and, and working on staff with pastors and different things like that and, and being told, you know, to buy a pastor. Not, not, we're not talking about even like out the doors of the church. This, this was a perspective about connection with people in the body, your brothers and your sisters, being told by a pastor, you can't get too close to people. Where did that lie come from? This leper was walking down the street and here comes the Messiah. And he had heard, I don't, I don't know that he knew who he was, but he knew he was somebody. And he said to him, you can make me whole if you will. And the scripture says on this piece of paper that's flying all around. In verse 13, Jesus said, or it doesn't say Jesus said anything. Check this out. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. He did what? Church, excuse me. He did what? He touched him. He touched a leper. There's no known cure for leprosy. I mean, you can go to the priests and they can do their ceremonial cleansing, but no one ever in Scripture is recorded as, as have, having been made whole or, or healed from leprosy because of ceremonial cleansing. I mean, it's not a guarantee. You might think, well, maybe Jesus was just willing to play the odds, you know. It's not a guarantee you'll get leprosy, but it's a very bad idea in the first century to touch a leper, right? And Jesus didn't say, okay, we'll just stand right there. I can do this. I mean, we know he didn't have to touch him. Didn't have to touch him. Or, or at least you would think that he didn't have to touch him. I mean, to a centurion, he would say, oh, just go home. This deal's done. All right? But the scripture says, I want you to see this. This is called for emphasis. This communication technique right here, it's called for emphasis, church, because the scripture says he touched him. Our Messiah was missional and incarnational, and we're called to be the same. He touched him. 
Can you imagine what the crowd's response was, Tom? I'm going to guess the disciples didn't jump in there and pray with. Hallelujah. Ah, yes, Lord. I'm going to guess this was one of those moments. I mean, they're new. That he didn't have the full 12, maybe, even in this moment. We don't know for certain. He sets them in order a bit later, but there was probably, there may have been more than 12 in that moment. There probably were a lot of people who were considering, you know, hey, can I want to be a disciple. I want to be a follower. Or, or maybe not. This guy's a little extreme. And Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man and said, I am willing be clean and immediately the leprosy left him but there's a lot more to that story I encourage you to read it it's great but I want to say to you I bet I could ask you and you could say the same but the times when I felt the closest to Jesus honestly I mean and I can feel pretty close to Jesus in the church but the times that I felt the closest to Jesus or, or dare I say, the most like Jesus. Because we, we are made to be Christ-like, to be incarnational, to embody, right? And I feel like most of my life I have felt like I was a far cry from an incarnational Christian. Like that I was, you know, and it always, I've said to you before, it always cracks me up when you're challenging someone about their their walk, especially as it relates to loving, and they would say something like, well, I'm not Jesus. And you know, I always want to say, well, really? Oh, boy. I mean, I will just assure you I've never had to say that. No one's ever accused me of being Jesus because <laughs> for the most part, I don't think I look very much like him. But there have been times. And the times when I felt the most like Jesus were, were times like if you've, if you've visited my Facebook page lately, there's a picture of me. There's a picture of me with a little girl from Naolau. And we were, we, were, we were very dirty, weren't we, Amanda? And, and that little girl for three days, she was one of the kids that she's in the picture the first night, David. When, you remember when they all came to watch us setting up our camp and we were in Naolau around western Zambia and we had all these, they're look, Makua, you know. They're not used to us fair-skinned folk and, and we're getting... We're drawing a crowd, and this little girl, she had all the bangles on, which were to cover her from demonic forces. They're, they're pretty messed up. And I remember specifically she had all those white bangles on. And, and, she, and I, a couple of times, you know, I scare people a little sometimes, even Americans, with my friendliness. And so I would, and everybody would run away. But it was maybe... I don't even know what day it was. I think I just said three or four days, but it really was probably longer than that. We, but it was toward the very end of our journey that I was sitting there probably showing um, Sylvester and Twitty on my iPhone. I learned that that was a great way to draw a kid crowd. And somehow she ended up on my knee. And I am filthy. I mean, I was just dirty. I wasn't so fair-complected, actually. And just the opportunity to hug her and hold her as a child of God. Or when I come in sometimes during the week and I get to go into the daycare, I guess I have a heart for kids. And I love to go, even on a Sunday morning, and lean over the half door. 
But on during the week, I love to go lean over the half door and just talk to David. He's at the tree of life. I just love to lean over and talk to David. And when I do that, I always feel like Jesus says, this is something that I would do. Or when I was holding given his first day at the orphan school and his tummy's out to here and it's questionable as to whether he'll live or not and he most likely is HIV positive but he's never been tested and, and we had buried his brother a few days before and he was very standoffish and again I conquered with the iPhone and he's sitting on my leg and all the other kids are trying to take his place and I was holding him in tight and now he's, he's squishing into me because he realizes hey this guy's taking care of me and and he's so absorbed in what he's doing that he pees on my leg. And I felt so much like Jesus in that moment. And there are multiple opportunities. I could share other stories, even just this last week, sitting on an airplane flying back from Atlanta with a lady who was afraid because her husband's gotten a job in the Roanoke area and for the first time they're going to move away from Atlanta and her 13-year-old son don't want to go because he's never lived in a house except the one that they live in and just an opportunity to share about how we are somehow Jesus gypsies but we always find God faithful and to be able to sit on a plane and pray with her for her son because it wasn't an accident that I was sitting in 7C because we're meant to be missional and incarnational and he touched him and you can't give people Jesus without giving people you. And who would want to anyway? Who wants that kind of plastic, fake, not real? And we're brothers and sisters, you know, even in the family. I mean, it's not even just about people outside the body. But, but let us not be so narcissistic and self-consumed that it's only about us either. But it's... it's, it's the dessert that you made and set in the car, you know, and it's it, it's it was in Mexico this week and getting a call from Lindsay, who's my neighbor? She's my neighbor. I mean, literally, you're all my neighbors, but she lives on my road. And I was sitting in a meeting and the phone and it was Lindsay and I thought, she doesn't know where I am and so something might be wrong. And so I drove ran out and answered the phone. Which doesn't make me special, by the way. It makes you special. I was like, what's going on at the paid house? And she said, my battery's dead. Can you help? Are you home? No, I am not. I'm in Puerto Vallarta, but I have Jacob's phone number because we're family and we take each other's calls and we touch each other. And we're touched by each other. And we love and live incarnationally and missionally in our world. Karen, last night, she and I had just some really good time together. Actually, yesterday afternoon, I appreciated that. She came home from getting groceries and she said, how busy are you? And I said, Psh, I just got real unbusy. And we just chatted and visited. And she shared a story with me from a book that she's been reading. It was a story of a lady named Jan Coates who's actually quite, I went on to just research her a little bit. She's actually quite a renowned speaker. 
And but she Jan tells her testimony of how when she was five years old that uh, she became uh, well even probably younger than that. I don't know. I'll probably not do this story justice. I'll encourage you to find it online and read it. But she talks about how her mother was um, her mother was an addict. She was an alcoholic. And later they found out even she was schizophrenic. And so she had lots of big issues. And she was, she was not in a safe place as a little girl. And she tells even about one morning when she was in kindergarten, coming into the kitchen, her mom's still in bed, and she had to get herself off to school. And she was trying to make for herself a peanut butter sandwich. And she pushed the chair over quietly so as to try and not wake mom up so she could climb up on the cabinet and get the peanut butter. But she woke her mom up, and she came out with a belt and just started beating her and and she tells of of even on occasion when her mom gave her some money for some she was able to buy some chocolate on the way to school but then when she got in the hallway the hall monitor or patrol person took it away from her and even as she walked away she watched her eat it and she just talked about different things that happened through her childhood and her teen years and story after story of things that caused her to have a hate list and God was on it and just the hurt that she had inside and and especially for her mom. And eventually her dad divorced her mom. He, and and she said he just didn't know how to deal with her. And, and her mom her was literally on the street most of the time. She was such an addict that even when she had a home, she hardly stayed in it. And, and she became so compulsive, she carried bags that she put... Um, food out of the dumpster in, but she didn't even usually eat it. She just kept it. And so she was just a disturbed lady. And she said one day she was driving with a co-worker and there was a, a lady walking down the side of the street. She hadn't seen her mom in quite a long while. And the guy said, hey, 10, ten extra points if you hit the bag lady. And she said as the lady kind of turned and made eye contact, she realized that it was her mom. And she was mortified. And, and she just tried to steer away and make sure she didn't get seen and she certainly didn't say to the man that was my mom but her siblings had rented their mom like helped her get a governmental housing place and she didn't know if she would even be staying there but she was so bothered by what she had seen and that she went looking for her and she and she went to her mom's apartment and normally she would even if she came she wouldn't really receive her but she knocked on the door and she said hey mom if you're there it's your daughter and and she, she said her mom in a, in a good voice said, come on in, sweetie. And she welcomed her into her home. Now her home still had the bags around with food in it and kind of random stuff and things that they had bought for her mom that she had never taken out of the bags or boxes. And she was living in this. But she said that her entire demeanor was different. And she was coherent. And she told her daughter, she said, I don't drink anymore. And I, I'm not on any of the drugs anymore. And I've met Jesus and he's delivered me. And she said, I want you to go with me sometime to meet my, my family of people who have helped me. And she said, she just, she always said stuff about being off alcohol. She never played a Jesus card before, but she always talked about that. So when she said that, that was sort of a new, new low of, yeah, and also Jesus. And so she said she called her bluff and she said, sure, I'll go with you sometime. When, when do you go? And she said, well, we need to leave right now. We're going to be late. And so she went with her and they went down to the local Salvation Army. Now listen, you don't have to, you know, the Salvation Army organizationally, whatever you think about the Salvation Army in 2011, they do some good stuff, by the way. They still, let's don't put judgments on them. We have a former student that is a Salvation Army pastor, and I'm just saying they're very incarnational. 
whatever else might be missing. They're very incarnational. And I remember even when I was in the military, I was wearing my Class A uniform on leave and got to visit Karen. And I was wearing my Class A uniform, and I went into the uh, latrine, I mean the restroom at the park that we were at, and a little boy was in there when I was in there, and as I, I was fixing my hat or whatever I was doing, I'm sure I wasn't fixing my hair, but I was fixing my hat, and I was getting ready to leave, and the little boy said, Hey, mister. And I said, Yes, sir. And he said, Are you in the Salvation Army? And I said, As a matter of fact, I am. Because we were all in the Salvation Army. But she said as she sat there that day that the people that were there treated her mother like she was the most important person on the planet. And that they, they welcomed her and they were anxious to meet her as her mother's daughter. And they talked to her about how great her mom was in front of her mom. And they, they spoke life to her and they brought her a plate and got her at her normal seat. And they loved her and they cared for her. And through that, not only a mother, but a daughter met our missional, incarnational Messiah because someone was willing to be hands and feet. And this was the kind of missional, incarnational life that Jesus lived. His, his daily choices, His daily choices were the people around Him. I'm convinced of this, Paul, that divine appointment is daily choices made missionally and incarnationally to choose love like the song that Matt sang earlier your love is like fire and when it consumes our our lives it it literally consumes our hearts our objectives our priorities are determined by the love of our Jesus and that was the kind of life he lived when he walked to this earth and it's the kind of life that he lives in us through the power of his Holy Spirit in 2011 in he healed a paralytic in Matthew 9 uh, he he encountered Zacchaeus in a tree or or when he he never missed anybody I guess is my point we'll come to this story later we actually have an artist in the church who's doing a rendering of this particular story but when the woman even with the issue of blood just and he was on his way and he was busy and touched even just the hem of his garment he was so aware people around him makes me want to be like Jesus it's not even just that though church it may be that you're here today and you feel like you've been missed and I would say no you have not no you have not been missed because Jesus doesn't miss anyone he's very intentional even when uh, there were two blind men in verses 27 and 31 of that same chapter of Matthew 9, Jesus saw them when they couldn't see him and he healed them. Or uh, three of the four gospel writers tell us of his healing a man with a withered hand. And finally in Matthew 12, 9 through 14, Matthew just said it this way. This is the first time in his gospel he just kind of finally gave up on it. But he said in Matthew uh, 12, he said, Jesus healed and ministered to multitudes. But the truth is, he healed and ministered to multitudes one at a time. And the entire time, he was living and loving, he was calling. 
Isn't that amazing? In the middle of all of that, he was always calling. He was calling people to wholeness and he was calling people to service at the same time. He's calling us to wholeness and he's calling us to service. Look at the fishermen that he called in Mark 4 or Matthew 4, Mark 1, Luke 5, John 1. In Matthew, he he calls Matthew to his own destiny in Matthew chapter 9. And I think that's there maybe in a handout that you have. Or in finally in Matthew chapter 10, he he puts in order the diverse dozen. That would be his most close disciples or followers. But he was, and it wasn't just that. He was consistently calling people and sending people. So it was always both for him. And he's still calling people to holiness and service today. The mission... To, he's calling people to mission, to incarnation, to the, I love this, to the power of mul- the multiplication of a grace-lived life. Right? He's calling people to the multiplication of a grace-lived life. I think that there's um, an understanding that we need to have that there's nothing wasted with Jesus. I was just in, um, as I said, I was in Mexico this week, and um, it was actually a good trip, so don't feel sorry for me. I, I wasn't really excited to go because if you got to go somewhere like Puerto Vallarta, you'd rather go with your wife. So to be honest with you, during the day, I mostly, when I wasn't in meetings, I mostly was in my room reading and working, but it was, it was cool. I did what I do when I travel alone. I put a towel over the television and put my Bible in front of it and just try to make sure that there's a consecration of holiness in my heart. And, and I had some good God time and some good journaling and the Lord definitely redeemed the time. And one, I serve as a volunteer on a missions board, basically, and I'm area director, but I volunteer in that capacity. And, and one of the men that, that I've had an opportunity the last several years to interact with is a man named John Bueno. I had never, I'd never met, which is a good name for a guy that ministered uh, as a missionary in, the, in Latin America, John Bueno. But uh, I met his wife for the first time this week. Her name is Lois, and she was quite a character. She was a hoot, actually. She was, she was raw and she was real and she talked about what it was like to live on the mission. But John is 72, just about to turn 73. And he's been, the, he's been the international director for this missions organization that I've worked and walked with for 19 years. And, and uh, he's just, uh, he's, he's interesting. He's an unassuming, I say this for your benefit. These are not wasted words. He's an unassuming kind of guy. You, would, you wouldn't, in an interaction with him, uh, over coffee or anything, you would not necessarily assume any great thing had happened in his life or through him. He, he is not a dynamic speaker, but he is great. I hope he will come here someday because he's great to listen to because he has so much to say. Uh, but he's retiring from this particular post. I assure you he'll still be doing stuff from now till Jesus comes back. But he shared a story because the thing that John and Lois did with the most of their lives was they started a ministry in El Salvador called uh, Latin American Child Care. In fact, you can check them out online. It's, it's an incredible ministry and organization. But it started in 1963. We were sitting around some tables for dinner the last night that we were there, and, and David Lee, our U.S. Um, uh, liaison for World Missions, uh, said, Hey, John, why don't you tell everybody in case someone has missed getting to hear about how you and Lois really started Latin American child care and, and so he shared he said you know we were in El Salvador we were I was fresh out of Bible college and 
and Lois didn't actually graduate. He was 23, she was 20, and they took off to El Salvador. They drove <laughs> from California. Lois was hilarious when she was telling about it. She said, I, I didn't know what I was doing. She said, I thought John was super spiritual, and I was the carnal one because I was like, what are we doing? This is crazy. And she said, I found out later he wasn't super spiritual either. He just knew Jesus real good. But um, she, she said, you know, and, that, and she, ta- I mean, she told hilarious stories about their car almost quitting. And, and he was saying, you know, one of us is going to have to get out and push. And she said it was a clutch car, and she was afraid it was real hilly, and she was afraid she would let off the clutch at the wrong time and kill him. So here she is, a 20-year-old girl pushing, you know, trying to get the car over the hills, driving through Mexico to try to get to El Salvador. And, and she said, and then on top of that, I can't believe I'm going to say the D word, but she got diarrhea. Yeah, you thought, you didn't know what I was going to say. But she said, and I'm from Northern California. No one there ever got diarrhea. I, was, I think she just didn't. But um, she was hilarious, but she just talked about how hard it was and how raw it was. She said, if we had really known, and she, she had already said no regrets, but she said, had we known going in what it would be like, maybe we wouldn't have gone. But there was grace a day at a time. But John said they were in El Salvador. It was their first year there. They had planted a little church, and they were trying to minister in that way. And uh, there was the Civil War broke out during the 60s in El Salvador. It was a really hectic time to be there. And there was already a lot of tension. It was dangerous to be on the streets after dark and he said he was driving home and there was a little boy standing on a little boy standing on a street corner that he had already seen several times that was selling newspapers and he said as he was driving by he just thought ah what is that little boy still doing out here and so he pulled his car over and he went over to the little boy and he said how many papers he knew he couldn't go home till he sold the papers he would be in trouble if he did and he said how many papers do you have left and the little boy said i just have three And he said, I'll take them. And he said, you would have thought that he had bought the little boy a car. Like he just, he just threw like a little Latino party. And he was happy, happy, happy. And he took off running home. And and it was just amazing. And he said, he said, and I'll use my words to describe what John communicated. But he said, as he was driving home, that was maybe the most like Jesus he had ever felt. But he said, then that night as he was trying to go to sleep and he was feeling real good about buying the newspapers. He said, the Lord said, but that little boy will be right back out there tomorrow selling newspapers because he has no school. He has no way out. He has no hope. And so they said in their hearts in 1963 that they would start a school. There's very few schools of any uh, kind, certainly any quality in El Salvador in the poor areas. Just private schools, government schools were not accessible even to the average kid. And there were zillions of kids on the streets and so they started a school and eventually that one school and it's not just a feeding program they they do feed kids breakfast and lunch and they help kids in that way but it is it is the number one uh, elementary education program in El Salvador on governmental program and and it grew from there and and that was the birth though was a heart for one little boy with three newspapers And he was sharing about how in 2008 he got to go. They were invited back. They had come now to the States in the 90s, and he had stepped into this post that I have known him in. And um, But they go back often. They're still very involved with Latin American child care, though he doesn't direct it anymore. And they got an invitation back for a 45th year celebration in 2008. And they didn't know that they, they were unaware that they were being honored and they didn't know where it was going to be. But when they got there, 
the celebration was hosted in the capital of El Salvador in a 70,000-seat soccer stadium. And people had to be turned away. And even this week when he told this story, he cried and took no credit. But the power of multiplication in a grace-lived life, when we're two simple, sweet people who chose God choices, Latin American child care is now in 21 nations. In El Salvador alone, over 500,000 kids have gone through their elementary education system. One last story about the Buenos. He told another story recently, again, in his, in his late 60s. He's in Central America, and he was um, ministering with a missionary there, visiting a guy, and he got really sick. And they were far from any significant town, but they, they made their way, and it took a bit to get there, and they got to a city, and they didn't really know anyone, and his insurance papers weren't in order and sometimes it can be really hectic they want large quantities of cash if you don't have your stuff in order and they didn't know anyone there and they were very concerned about how you know would he even get seen would they see him and he and they went in and the guy that he was with said hey i've got a man here from the states his name is john bueno he's he needs some medical care and hope that you will see him and the the lady the nurse went back and she in a few moments a doctor came out and he said of course we'll see you you're John Bueno. I went to one of your schools. And not only that, the director of this hospital went to your school. And probably my favorite story of all may well be the story that Jesus, that is of Jesus in John chapter 4, verses 1 through 42. When Jesus goes, talk about missional. He went out of his way. The scripture tells us that he was again ministering and there was pressure. Uh, the, the Pharisees heard that he was baptizing more men than John, which wasn't entirely true if you want to loophole it. I mean, the disciples were actually doing the baptizing, but anyway. <laughs> and it wasn't time for Jesus to be crucified yet. So once again, he headed back to Galilee. And the scripture tells us that he had to go through Samaria. I'd like to point out to you that geographically it did make sense, but he didn't have to go through Samaria. A lot of Jews would have avoided the city of, of Sychar, but Jesus didn't. And the disciples, as we know, went on into town and Jesus took a seat by Jacob's well. And the Samaritans were people of disfavor simply because they were mixed race, which is ridiculous, obviously. A hate that God's not in favor of. And Jesus sat and this woman comes in the middle of the day. It was the sixth hour. She comes for water. I think it's easy for us sometimes in the drawings and depictions of this story to see this lady kind of neatly dressed. And, uh, you know, she was a little on the down low, but I think this lady was rough, frankly. We know that in this, as the story plays out, Jesus says to her, could you give me a drink of water? And... Uh, she says, how is it that you, a Jewish man, would ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? And he said, if you knew who it was that had asked you, you would have asked of me and I would have given you living water. And she said, how could you possibly give anyone a drink? You don't even have a ladle. And the well is deep. How are you going to? I don't think that this woman was that ignorant, by the way. 
I think when Jesus said what he said, she, she had a history. Maybe that's some of us today, but she had a history in the church. She, she knew something about, I mean, and we, we would see that as the conversation continues, but she knew something. And I, and I don't think as Jesus was sitting there and he began to speak in this way that he, his words were without some authority. And I think maybe even in this moment she began to wonder, was this the man that she had heard about? Certainly his fame had been uh, going ahead of him. And I wonder if she wondered, is, could this, who is this guy? And so she baited some questions herself as a cynic. And she said, how are you going to get anybody a drink of water? You don't even have something to dip it out with. But she knew he wasn't talking. He said, live in water. And she said, by the way, she said, when, you know, the Jews and the Samaritans have different views about worship. And, you know, he goes on to say, hey, you know what? Uh, it's not about the mountain. It's not about worshiping in Jerusalem or in the synagogue. But there's a day coming when true worshipers will worship in spirit and truth. And I like what he said right here. I can have some fun with this. This would be good in a stand-up. But Jesus said, there's a day coming. Check this out. And now is. Huh. Isn't that something? Jesus can do that, though. <laughs> there's a day coming. And now is. He just stepped right into it. Right now, actually. One day he's going to do that. He's going to say, and one day I'm going to come back right now. He's going to do that one day. I'm coming back sometime in the future now. And he said to her, there's a day coming in. And now is. And he brought to this woman. He both sought and sent his father's daughter. In one fell swoop, he ministered healing and hope. And he, he sent her right back into her world. And in this moment, she said, she spoke of the Messiah. And he said, the one who speaks to you is he. And right then the disciples walked up. Now the disciples were clueless. They went in town to get some food. We would have been clueless too. I ain't trying to diss on the disciples. But they walked up. And, and I like the way that John tells this story. Because he, he says, and all the disciples wondered, what is he doing talking to this Samaritan woman? But nobody asked. That was a good move, John and the boys. Hey, what are you doing, man? They are just like, what's he doing? And the woman left her jar and ran into town and told everybody. And as the story plays out, she went on. People did come back, and, and they entreated him to stay, and he stayed two days. And the Scripture tells us that ultimately... Hey, BJ. The Scripture tells us that ultimately the people even were able to say to her that they believed. Not because. They said, originally we believed because of what you said. But now we believe because of what we ourselves have seen and heard. I want to be that missional and incarnational. I, you know, I'm okay with first saying, hey, come come see, come see. I'm okay with being the draw. But at some point, I hope that he's so real in me that what they see is he. BJ's going to sing a song over us. And... Um, it's a song by 10th Avenue North. And it's, I was listening to it after I had had an opportunity to pray with the lady on the airplane. She was kind of dozing off. 
and um, I turned on a little music there. And I've heard this song before, Bobby, but not right after I read John 4 because Holy Spirit wrote this song about this lady and about us who also have been saved and sent. There's a girl on the corner Tear stains on her eyes From the places she's wandered And the shame she can't hide She said, how did I get here? I'm not who I once was And I'm crippled by the fear That I've fallen too far from love But you don't know What's been done for you? Yeah, you don't know who you are. You are more than the choices that you made. You are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the things you create. You've been remade. Well, she tries to believe it. shake the feeling that not true tonight she knows all the answers she rehearsed all the lines and so she'll try to do better but she's too weak to try but you don't know who you are no you don't know Than the problems you create, you've been remade. Than the choices that you made, you are more than the sum of your past mistakes. You are more than the problems you create. You've been remade. Cause this is not about what you've done, what's been done. brings you to this is not about what you feel but what he felt to forgive what he felt to make you love what he felt to make you love you more than the choices that you made you more than the sum of your past mistakes you are more than the problems you create you've been remade you are more than the choices that you made you are more than the sum of your past mistakes you are more than the problems you create you've been remade oh you've been remade you've been remade You've been remade. You've been remade.
course, the truth is our missional Messiah came for each of us. Aren't you glad you were on God's to-do list like the woman at the well? He came looking for you. How does it feel to be found? I think it feels very loved. If you can't sense that love this morning, then I pray for you. I hope for you. In fact, I call to you, and I wish that you would come. In fact, right now, I would just say that this area is open, and if you would want someone to pray with you, you can come and kneel across this front. And that's a right now invitation. Right here. Right now. And for the rest of us, maybe for you, it's just, uh, maybe it's a prophetic moment for you to say, maybe again, maybe to renew, right, um, your willingness to walk out your mission, his mission, rather, right? John Bueno, he was kind of as a, a closing thought. And again, this was a very casual kind of a conversation. But he was just talking, again, just such a soft-spoken, kind of on the down-low dude. But he, he just randomly made this statement. He said, how can we... He, he just looked at her and said something to the effect of, it's not like we're, we're just retiring from this post, but not from life. And how can we, how can we not go? And he said this. He looked at someone else over here and he said, I mean, have you read Matthew 28? When Jesus' parting words were, go into all the world and teach them and make disciples of all men and teach them all things. I have commanded you. Good word. Maybe for us today, it's just an opportunity to um, once again declare our willingness to walk out God's mission. I know I ask you this frequently, but who who is on your to-do list? Is it only tasks? Or are there people? I'll tell you, I'm very thankful to be on Karen's to-do list. I am. Um, And there's a place where some of your moms and your to-do list, I mean, you, the first three or four or five folks on the list are pretty easy. But what about the next two or three, too? What about the other mom that you could minister to or maybe in the workplace? I'm all about some random conversations on airplanes, but the best place for living out the mission of God is in the context of relationships and friendships. So, Lord, even as we prepare to go today, draw our hearts to you and God help us to remember that we are more we are not uh, God our pasts do not define us but it is our future in you Lord that is our destiny just like the woman in John 4 uh, saved and sent in the name of Jesus for sure for sure and God if there is someone here in this moment it feels like that um, they've been beyond the scope of your love. I pray that that lie be destroyed right now in the name of Jesus. Can you pray that with me? 
Lord, that no one believe that that's true, but that every heart walk in redemption and peace and hope because you still live on your mission to save and hold and heal our hearts. In the powerful name of Jesus, amen. Well, I'm going to stay up here for a few minutes, and if you need prayer, please don't hesitate to come. would love to pray with you. And um, otherwise, I hope you have a fabulous week, and I hope you live it in the love of God and on His mission. See ya.